Section 15 of Sir Francis Drake by Julian Corbett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Singeing the King of Spain's Beard. Part 1. There is a very great gap opened, said Drake in his letter to Burley, very little to the liking of the King of Spain. That with the calm request for orders was his comment on a feat which changed the destinies of europe at its fullest flood he had stemmed the tide of spanish empire it was no less a thing than that a few months ago all europe had been cowering in confused alarm before the shadow of a new roman empire ever since the first triumph of luther the cause of reformation had been steadily losing ground on england and the low countries hung its only hope and with the fall of antwerp europe saw itself on the eve of that last great battle in the west which must decide its fate for centuries in despair of the result each trembling power was trying to hide behind the other each was thrusting its neighbour forward to break the coming blow and philip led the cheating till his hour should come he was bent on crushing elizabeth and then with one foot on the ruins of her kingdom he meant to stamp down his rebellious netherlands into the gloomy catholicism in which his own dark soul was sunk as the fruit of his splendid deliberation ripened he strove to cheat her into inactivity by a hope that peace might yet be purchased by the betrayal of the netherlands she bit the bait and spat it out and bit again and all the while squirted round her a cloud of falsehood as black as that with which philip was covering his spring her wisest counsellors were in despair at her folly and confessed to each other that on francis drake hung the last hope of europe then in laughing gusts came over the atlantic the rumours of his exploits till the full gale they heralded swept over europe whirling into oblivion a hundred intrigues and bending the prestige of spain like a reed the limitless possibilities of the newborn naval warfare had been demonstrated and the lesson startled europe like a revelation an unmeasured force was added to statecraft and a new power had arisen the effect was immediate men saw the fountain of spanish trade at england's mercy they knew how narrowly the plate fleet had escaped and a panic palsied philip's finance the bank of seville broke that of venice was in despair and the king of spain pointed at as a bankrupt failed to raise a loan of half a million ducats parma was appalled with his brilliant capture of antwerp he had seen himself on the brink of that great exploit with which he hoped to crown his career and now instead of a host armed at all points for the invasion of england he saw around him a broken army it was impossible to supply in germany the protestant princes raised their heads and seeing dawn at last began to shake off the lethargy into which despair had plunged them england was wild with joy burley himself was almost startled from his caution and cried out with half a shudder that drake was a fearful man to the king of spain but so tumultuously was the great epoch now hurrying to its catastrophe that drake could not be spared a moment from the scene in the midst of the ovation with which he was received the great babington plot was disclosed it was known that philip by a combined operation from lisbon and the netherlands 
had intended to invade england the moment he heard elizabeth had been assassinated and many believed he would persevere in spite of babington's failure and drake's triumphant return the imprisonment of mary stuart for her complicity in the plot was followed by a threat of war from france and no one could tell what scotland would do the fleet was mobilized to watch the narrow seas and so great had been the anxiety of the government while drake was away that they had no idea of letting him cross the ocean again till the danger was over he knew well enough that in attack lay england's best defence his genius had discovered how a naval power should make war and he was craving for leave to deal another stroke at philip's trade but so far from being permitted to repeat his blow elizabeth sought to pacify philip by a brazen disavowal of his late exploits this was his reward peerages and pensions the fairy queen kept for her carpet knights the fighting men had to rest content with plunder and renown and drake cheerfully accepted a position for which his loyalty was fully prepared and which only made him more conspicuously a factor in european politics to the consternation of the whole catholic world philip accepted elizabeth's transparent excuse disgusted at babington's failure he was resolved that nothing should again tempt him from his own line of approach his method was slow and laborious but time alone was wanted to make success certain so the smiles and the lying went on again and while philip and parma under cover of diplomacy resumed the gigantic preparations which drake had interrupted with a panic elizabeth turned once more to her little pirate since his return he had been condemned to the old feudal tactics and sir william winter had been keeping watch in the narrow seas for the invasion that was hourly expected but as the autumn waned the immediate danger passed the channel squadrons were brought in to be overhauled and drake hurried over to the low countries on a secret mission a joint expedition with the dutch against the spanish indies had long been urged by the queen's most far-seeing statesmen and soldiers they knew it would give spain a wound so deadly that she never could be the same again and now the moment seemed arrived late in the autumn drake crossed the seas that he knew so well from the hard days of his boyhood wherever he went the great navigator was received like a prince and although the states refused him assistance officially he was authorized to treat privately with the various cities men who knew him had no doubt of his success and all would have gone well could elizabeth have been for a moment sincere but the distrust which leicester's fatuous government had engendered almost from the moment he had been sent in answer to the rebel's prayer for a leader was only deepened by his withdrawal from the scene of his failure he returned to england in november and drake with hopes still high followed him to organize the english contingent for the new enterprise but whatever the dutch cities may have intended all hope of cooperation was at an end when in january deventer and the fort of zutphen were betrayed to the spaniards by the two english traders that leicester had left in command still had it been otherwise it is certain that drake would not have been allowed to go mary stuart was under sentence of death and the attitude of france was more menacing than ever for two years philip had been at work upon his armada 
his ports were crowded with its details his storehouses were bursting with its furniture and walsingham at last was able to convince the queen by a paper stolen from the very closet of the pope that it was upon her head the great engine was to crash her eyes were opened and infected for a moment with the warlike spirit into which her people and her parliament had lashed themselves she ordered drake to the coast of spain it was no longer as a privateer that he was to act he held the rank of her majesty's admiral at the seas and william burgh the controller of the navy was his vice-admiral four of the queen's largest battleships and two of her pinnaces were under his command and the london merchants committed to his flag ten fine cruisers with the famous merchant royal at their head besides these he had six hundred tons of his own shipping as well as some of the lord admiral's in all exclusive of tenders there were twenty-three sail five battleships two first-class cruisers seven of the second class and nine gunboats large and small with this fine force he was instructed to proceed to cape st vincent and by every means in his power to prevent the concentration of the several divisions of the armada by cutting off their victuallers and even destroying them in the ports where they lay if the enemy sailed for england or ireland he was to hang on their skirts cut off stragglers and prevent a landing and finally he was given a free hand to act against the east and west india convoys elizabeth was in a resolute mood drake's ideas of naval warfare were developing a step further and the queen for the moment listened he was beginning dimly to grasp that the command of the sea was the first object for a naval power to aim at it was because he had not command of the seas that he had been unable to retain his hold of cartagena for the troops which should have formed his garrison were wanted to defend his fleet wiser for the lesson his aim was now to crush the spanish navy and then in undisputed control of the sea to gather in his harvest the opposition was thoroughly alarmed and while drake in hot haste was driving on his preparations they left no stone unturned to get his orders modified they tampered with his men they whispered slanders in his mistress's ear they frightened her with threats from abroad they tempted her with offers of peace from parma on the old disgraceful terms for walsingham who through thick and thin was always at drake's back it was an unequal fight with the staunchest of his party in disgrace for mary's premature execution he was single-handed against a host and at last the friends of spain prevailed early in april a messenger sped down to plymouth with orders that operations were to be confined to the high seas as philip's ships were all snug in port and could well-nigh remain there as long as drake's stores allowed him to keep the sea it was a complete triumph for spain but when the messenger dashed into plymouth with the fatal packet he found the roadstead empty drake was gone in vain at the last moment a number of his sailors had been induced to desert he had filled their places with soldiers in vain a swift pinnace was dispatched in pursuit drake had taken care no orders should catch him and with his squadron increased by two warships from lyme was already off finisterre battling with a gale that drove the pinnace home for seven days it raged and forced the fleet far out to sea 
still drake held on in its teeth and so well had he his ships in hand that on the sixteenth within twenty-four hours after the gale had blown itself out the whole fleet in perfect order was sailing gaily eastwards past cape st vincent eastwards for he had intelligence that cadiz harbour was full of transports and store-ships and on the afternoon of the nineteenth as he entered the bay he saw a forest of masts in the road behind the city a council of war was summoned at once and without asking their opinion he quietly told them he was going to attack it was his usual manner of holding a council but it took burra's breath away it shocked the old queen's officer and outraged his sense of what was due to his own reputation and experience and the time-honoured customs of war he wanted to talk about it and think about it and find out first whether it was too dangerous and there was certainly some excuse for his caution cadiz stands on a precipitous rock at the end of a low and narrow neck of land some five miles in length running parallel to the coast within this natural breakwater are enclosed an outer and an inner port and so cumbered with shoals and rocks was the entrance from the sea that no ship could get in without passing under the guns of the town batteries while access from the outer to the inner port was only to be gained by the puntal passage half a mile wide opposite cadiz on the other side of the outer harbour was port st mary and within the puntal channel at the extreme end of the inlet stood port royal both places however were so protected by shoals as to be unapproachable except to the port pilots it was an ideal scene of action for galleys to develop their full capabilities two had already appeared to reconnoitre and how many more there were no one could tell galleys it must be remembered were then considered the most formidable warships afloat and quite invincible in confined waters or calms by all the rules of war on which borough was the first authority in the service to attack was suicide but drake had spent his life in breaking rules he did not care the enemy was there his authority was in his pocket the wind was fair his officers believed in him and as the sun sank low behind them the fleet went in a scene of terror and confusion followed every ship in the harbour cut its cables and sought safety in flight some to sea some across the bay to st mary's some through the puntal passage to the inner harbour and port royal to cover the stampede ten galleys came confidently out from under the cadiz batteries all was useless while the chartered cruisers swooped on the fugitives the queen's ships stood in to head off the advancing galleys as coolly as though they had fought them a hundred times before in a few minutes the english admiral had taught the world a new lesson in tactics galleys could only fire straight ahead and as they came on line abreast drake passing with the queen's four battleships athwart their course poured in heavy broadsides never before had such gunnery been seen ere the galleys were within effective range for their own ordnance they were raked and riddled and confounded and to the consternation of the spaniards they broke for the cover of the batteries two had to be hauled up to prevent their sinking the rest were a shambles and nothing was now thought of but how to protect the city from the assault which seemed inevitable hardly any troops were there a panic seized the population and drake was left alone to do the work for which he had come 
Beyond the batteries, the fleet anchored with its prizes, plundering and scuttling with all its might, till flood came in again. Then all that remained was fired, and by the flare of the blazing hulks as they drifted clear with the tide, Drake moved the fleet into the mouth of the Puntal Channel, out of range of the batteries. He himself took up a position seawards of the new anchorage to engage the guns which the Spaniards were bringing down from the town, and to keep off the galleys, for as yet the work was but half done. In the inner harbour lay the splendid galleon of the Marquis de Santa Cruz, and a crowd of great ships too big to seek the refuge of the shoals about Port Royal, and at daylight the Merchant Royal went boldly in with all the tenders in company. Then, in spite of the labours of the past night, the plundering, scuttling, and burning began again. Outside, the galleys were making half-hearted demonstrations against the English anchorage, but they were easily kept at bay. By noon it was all over, and Drake attempted to make sail. In the past thirty-six hours, he had entirely revictualled his fleet with wine, oil, biscuit, and dried fruits. He had destroyed some twelve thousand tons of shipping, including some of the finest vessels afloat, and four ships laden with provisions were in possession of his prize crews. It was enough and more than enough. But the wind would not serve, and all day long he lay where he was, in sight of the troops that were now pouring along the isthmus into Cadiz. Again and again the galleys attempted to approach, and every time Drake's broadsides swept them back before they reached their effective range. Vainly, too, the Spaniards strove to post guns near enough to annoy the fleet. Nor did the struggle cease till at midnight a land wind sprung up, and brushing from his path the galleys that sought to block the way, Drake made sail. By two o'clock he had cleared the batteries and was safe outside without losing a single man. Boldly enough, then, the galleys gave chase, but unfortunately the wind suddenly shifted completely round. Drake at once went about, and the galleys fled in most undignified haste, leaving the English fleet to complete its triumph by anchoring unmolested in full view of the town. End of section 15